Welcome to the Food and Beverage Processor Forum, brought to you by Food and Beverage Ontario. I'm Dyson Wells. And I'm Chris Conway, CEO at Food and Beverage Ontario. Today, we're diving into a subject that meets at the intersection of both our personal and business lives, money, specifically financial well-being. Why is this so crucial? Studies indicate that financial concerns are the primary stressor for Canadians, overshadowing work, personal health, and even relationships. In fact, 40% of working Canadians report feeling overwhelmed by their debt levels. Nearly half have lost sleep due to financial anxieties, and 44% would struggle to meet their financial obligations if their pay was delayed. What's more, over half of our working population acknowledges that personal financial worries affect their work performance, leading to distractions and diminished focus. This kind of stress doesn't just weigh heavily on people. Businesses feel the impact as well. With potential productivity losses that could amount to over $200,000 annually for a company with 200 employees. Additionally, financial stress doubles the likelihood of reporting poor health and quadruples the odds of experiencing sleep issues and other health-related problems. Yet, there is a silver lining. Employees who invest in their workers' financial well-being see tangible rewards. A financially secure workforce tends to be more productive, has reduced absenteeism, and generally boosts morale. Such proactive measures by employers can also bolster recruitment and retention efforts. Interestingly, a significant majority of employers, 73% and 70% of employees, believe that it's the employer's duty to support employee financial well-being. Moreover, a whopping 84% of employees express interest in workplace financial education programs. In the first segment of our episode, we'll discuss the advantages of promoting financial literacy and security among employees and the steps businesses can adopt to make a difference. Joining us for this conversation is Kevin McCarthy, Head of Corporations and Institutions at Enriched Academy. In the latter half, we'll pivot to discuss the broader financial well-being of businesses in the food and beverage processing sector. For this, we'll bring in Matt McDonald from MNP. As the national leader of MNP's food and beverage processing practice, Matt will shed light on the strategies businesses could employ to promote financial stability and growth, as well as protect itself from financial risks, both seen and unseen. It's an episode packed with invaluable insight for both employees and business owners. Stay tuned. Joining us on the pod today is Kevin McCarthy. Kevin is the former chief of staff to Jim Flaherty, a past director with Scotiabank, as well as a former senior advisor at Foresight Strategic Advisors. Today, Kevin is head of corporation and institutions at Enriched Academy. 
They provide financial education through online training courses and live events that focus on fundamentals of effectively managing money, spending, and investing. So a perfect guest to have on the show today while we talk about uh, money. And rest assured, I had thought about it a lot. We would have done our introduction with uh, some Pink Floyd, but I don't think we can afford the rights to that. (laughs) Um, But, uh, you know, we'll see what we can do. Uh, so welcome to the show, Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, it's great. And um, before we started recording here, and also while I was researching, I, I had to ask you about it because we were researching and we saw that you did get a new uh, agreement with the government of Manitoba. So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, thank, thanks. Yeah, just two weeks ago, I was out in, in Winnipeg. Uh, we signed a new agreement with the government of Manitoba for our high school program. We've got, we'll probably get into this, but we've got a high school, middle school, um, uh, elementary program, as well as programs for adults and post-secondary. But uh, so next year, um, up to 1,500 students in Manitoba high schools will be using our financial literacy program to help them learn about the basics around money. So very excited about that. That makes three provinces where we're in Alberta and in Prince Edward Island and we're uh, in Ontario where I live. We've got 20, uh, 20 school boards directly that we're, we're working with. So last year we had 170,000 students using our, our program, which is, which is pretty exciting because when I, when I speak to an audience, I often ask, how many people learn about money in, in high school? And uh, I barely ever have a hand go up. So, Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I always cringe when we start talking about money because I feel like I didn't get that proper education. And uh, a lot of the time it feels like you're just kind of learning as you go along. I always joke about going into the bank whenever I have to talk to him. My advisor, he turns into a teacher because um, <laughs> it's basic things he'll try and talk to me about. And I'm like, you need to explain it. And you've got a lot of students that you're working with, a lot of employees that you're you're working with to try and give them that understanding, that basic foundation for financial well-being. So I'm wondering, what is that gap that's going on right now? Is there is there like a, a lack of understanding right now in the general population on understanding financial, well, I guess with financial literacy? Yeah, look, Jason, I think there's a significant gap. I think if you ask the average Canadian, they will acknowledge they have a significant gap. There's, we started off teaching, focused on teaching high school kids um, about money, but we suddenly realized that there's a much bigger need out there and that's the adults. Cause a big part of the reason that kids don't know about uh, money is that their parents don't know about money because none of us were ever taught We're you know, we're taught about Shakespeare. We're taught about calculus. Um, and these are I'm not knocking those, but, Dealing with money is something 100% of people have to do. It doesn't matter what career you're in, you're going to have to deal with money. And it's something you have to deal with every single day. So there's a significant education gap. And what that leads to, I mean, Dyson, you're not, um, I hear this all the time. Why didn't they teach this in high school? Why didn't I learn this? Why am I, because unless, if you didn't get it taught in high school, and if your parents weren't able to pass this on, you're on your own. You're trying to figure this out on your own. And some people are effective at doing that, but the majority of Canadians aren't. And then there's the other factor in this is that there's a real stigma as well around not understanding money. People feel embarrassed about it. They feel like, you know, I should know this. I feel like these are basic things I should know. But if you haven't been taught it, haven't taken the time to learn it, it's not surprising. But that embarrassment 
you know, I, I think sticks around. And a big part of what we try to do at Enrich Academy is, is, is make the language of money and the topic of money simple. And we also try to take some of that stigma out because it's not your fault <laughs> if, you, if you haven't learned this. This is an education piece. And if you haven't been educated, you can't, can't be blamed for it. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad. Thank you, Kevin, for making me feel less alone. <laughs> yeah, the, um, you really are, you're, you're, you're not alone. The majority of Canadians, I think, fit, again, we, we have teachers that teach our program that tell us, oh my gosh, I'm learning so much teaching my students, again, because they weren't taught this, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess the, the goal is obviously to build that financial well-being. And keeping in mind for, for our purposes, when we're talking about financial well-being, we may be talking about listeners. I, I wouldn't know, right? Uh, we may have people who are higher ups in food and beverage processing industry who also feel like they need to get to brush up on their financial literacy. But for the bulk of this, I think we're going to be talking about the employee's side. People who are out of high school and who are working at businesses that need help managing money understanding investments and, and essentially just working towards financial well-being so in a business side you know what are we talking about when we say financial well-being for employees well the way we at enrich academy kind of look at that is is you know there's different ways you can talk about financial well-being it could be meeting your current financial needs whatever they are if they're mortgage payments things like that it could be you know having security around your future but we really try to boil it down if, if if people are satisfied financially it really needs not having to worry about money you know having the confidence that the money you have is going to meet again your immediate needs and then you've got a plan for the future and that's what you know we've surveyed canadians we've asked them you know what 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 do they want when it comes to money and it's not making millions of dollars it's really just i don't want to worry about money um, and that's what we consider uh, like we, our mission is to make financial freedom accessible to everyone. So the idea that um, at some point you're on a path that you're not going to have to work for the rest of your life and that you can have, you don't have to worry about money. That, that would be what we, what we see as somebody with, with solid, that's financially well off. It's not again about a certain amount of money. It's about that lack of worry and stress when it comes to money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So th that kind of brings in. The discussion of what are the benefits to financial well-being and keeping in mind that this is benefits to your employees and that's going to start tie tying into different aspects of your business but let's start it off with what are the benefits of financial well-being to these employees yeah so if, if you think about it money impacts so many areas of our lives it is the number one stress that canadians face it, it's it's a higher stress than work-related finance health throughout covid um, people cared and stressed more about money than they did their own personal health. And so it's a, there's an impact on mental health. People that are financially stressed, workers that are financially stressed are more anxious. They worry more about money. There's a physical aspect of financial stress. Uh, Canadians that are financially stressed are four times likely to suffer from sleep problems. Uh, half of all Canadians say they, they've lost sleep because of money worries. Heart disease and high blood pressure are linked to financial stress. So that's the physical side. Relationship side, too. There, you know, the, one of the leading causes of divorces is, is arguments around money. So it, it impacts our relationships. And then there's a the workplace productivity. Like There's a real financial cost to employers 
uh, to have financially stressed employees. Uh, and financially stressed employees are two and a half times more likely to take sick days, so they're not work. Uh, when they are at work, uh, there's a lot of study that shows that uh, financially stressed employees take between half an hour to three hours per week working on their own personal finances as opposed to their job. So there's a significant loss of productivity. So again, if you just think about it, money impacts so many areas of our lives. And so they're, if, if you've got a financially stressed employees, they're not as productive as they could be and they're, they're stressed and they're, they're, not, they're not functioning the way that you would hope they could. Definitely kind of touches all aspects of life, right? I guess money talks, right? And it, it, uh, it can definitely be a, an issue when it, it starts going south for an employee. Um, so let's pretend, for example, that uh, I'm an employer right now and I've got a bunch of employees and I'm wondering what might be their more common financial stressors that they're facing. Yeah, it's a great question. So if you're an employer in Canada, just say this, half of your employees are financially stressed. Like that's, there's been the Canadian Payroll Association has done this study going back 13 years. And that number is, is only going up. And I should put a caveat on that. That was the last numbers that I have was before inflation and interest rates really hit. So I think it's going to be even higher than that. But at least half of your employees are financially stressed. And the most common stresses would be debt. So debt around student loans or credit card debt or, or mortgages. And this has been arguably it's been manageable over the last couple of years because interest rates were so low. But this is spiked, right? The, the, the anxiety that we are seeing in the workplace is unlike anything I've seen before because people are suddenly having to pay five, six percent on a, on a line of credit or their, their mortgage is suddenly coming due and they may have been on a variable mortgage and suddenly they're paying thousands of dollars more than they did before. So those would be big kind of crisis kind of uh, thing. Then there's low line level of, of stress, I would say. Low level may, may be uh, downplaying it around knowing that you're not saving enough and then kind of thinking about the future and retirement or maybe thinking about your kid's education, um, knowing that, that you know, suddenly you're going to have to in five years time pay a fair amount for education and you don't have savings for it so that whole saving and investing side if people are struggling with debt that side is is there too and just um so those would be probably from what we see debt and then saving for the future um and then underlying all of this is a general unease with not knowing who to turn to as well with this and knowing there's these problems or feeling you know and we hear it all the time I'm just not sure if I can trust my financial, uh, financial advisor. Are they, are they really going to be acting in my, my best interest? And we hear that a lot too. Yeah. There's a lot of ways that uh, you can get concerned about money and there's a lot of ways that can impact productivity. So with an employer, how do you support financial well-being within your workforce? Yeah, so there are there are programs out there. We have a program. We're working with um, we're working with unions. We're working with businesses. The RCMP, for example, is is an organized. Every single RCMP officer is using our program. Um, the Canadian military. We're just in the process of signing a deal with them. I was just speaking at a construction company with about 200 employees here in Ontario. And so there's there's different ways. Education again, we think is the key. Uh, we think it's important to have engaging education because money can, again, seem to be a very intimidating topic. And then it also has to be timely and, and 
easily digestible. So we've got online programs. Uh, we've also got, we do live events. We run webinars. We also do coaching, one-on-one -on -one coaching where they're not sold any products. And so we think it's a combination of that because everyone learns differently. Uh, so, so what might be you know, good for one, like an online 24 hour, 24 seven access might be great for certain employees. Other employees might learn better in, in an, in an event with, with colleagues or a webinar, or they might prefer some, some coaching and one-on-one -on -one help. So that's really the way we've tailored our program. There's other others out there as well, but we think, you know, our model seems to be very effective so far. Yeah, just a quick question. I mean, I, I think about there's that famous quote from Albert Einstein. He was once asked if there's something he didn't understand and his response was compound interest. And I think for the average person, a lot of financial stuff can seem almost impenetrable. And particularly with, you know, mortgage rates having been so low for so long. And, you know, the type of comments that were made to people like, well, if they even go up a few percentage points, it didn't sound like a lot. It actually is a lot. It's, it's a tremendous amount, the increases that have happened lately, you know, where rates are in the 5 to 6% range. Um, so what I was going to ask Kevin is, you know, for the average person, so like one method is sort of some of the programs you're running, but a good source of basic information about some of this, because we don't get it in high school. Um, I know myself, I, I, I didn't get a handle on this till I went to business school, and you start doing courses on this, you learn about it, which is great. But... You know, coming out of high school, I think none of us really got training in this and learned about these things. You get it from your parents or not at all or by the seat of your pants. So are there some basic resources out there people could look at if they're trying to educate themselves on this to learn more about sort of general financial management, understanding sort of tools that could be available perhaps online or otherwise? Yeah, I know there's lots of uh, resources. I mean, I, I first learned about it through The Wealthy Barber. So that's a book, uh, David Chilton, um, a famous book in Canada, one of the top sellers of all time. And he just tells a simple story, kind of breaking down basic personal finance tips. So I often say, if you've got a library card <laughs> and everybody if living in Canada love access to a library, there is a wealth of material out there. The two main areas that we tend to recommend, I recommend people focus on is getting a handle on your spending first and foremost. I mean, what part of what we teach is it's not rocket science, spend less than you make, right? Um, that's a, but, but most, many Canadians don't know where their money's going because they're not tracking it. And again, that can feel boring. It can feel, but it's, it's critical to, to, to know you work so hard for your money yet you spend. And we, and I say you, I, I mean, we Canadians, cause we tend to, to over, overspend. So there are great resources. So out there, um, there are, you know, free resources, lots of free resources out there. The challenge is, is those have been there for a while. Uh, we really, I really think that uh, there needs to be some, if it's not in the education system, having it injected into some sort of process, because a big part of this is habits, right, Chris? It, it is the, the spending habit, the, the, the saving habit, pay yourself first. I mean, that's a, a very common, uh, been talked about for years, the idea of putting aside every paycheck um, a certain percentage of your money. So you know you're paying yourself first as opposed to the other method, which is pay all the bills, pay everybody else, and then whatever's left over, I'm gonna I'm gonna save. That just doesn't doesn't work. So so these are again, I would encourage people. The the internet's been very helpful in this front. Uh, there are a, a number of good resources out there. Um, the library, good old fashioned books, but uh, I think there are 
but you have to be intentional about it. I like to say that financial literacy is one of the easiest things to put off and the excuses we hear them all the time, you know, I'm not a math person or I'm not a money person. So this isn't for me, or I'll, I'll do this when I, I've got a, a job. We hear this from students. I'll do this when I work or I'll start to learn this, or I'll do this when I make more money. You know, there's lots of reasons people put it off. I, part of it is an intimidation factor. So a big part of what we would, I would also say is that if you start on this money's really a language, you understand the basics of the language. You can start to be very successful pretty quickly. Um, but you need some help, uh, and that's why there's lots of resources out there, I think, that can help. Um, we run free webinars constantly. We have run the two webinars uh, a week going on, and so that's another free resource to, to use. It's interesting you mentioned The Wealthy Barber. I've read that one. That's a good book, and I think about as well Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and The Millionaire Next Door, a couple others that over Great the years, uh, yeah, that you come across like this, and, and in plain language, right, because I think that's part of it very quickly this stuff gets can get heavy yeah. right and hard to understand if people don't have training but those are definitely some some materials that are out there that are in plain english that people can understand and yeah and, and really I, I heard a story that uh chilton who wrote the book doesn't use a credit card apparently he uh he has one but apparently he doesn't use it because he wants to remind himself when he's spending money what he's actually but i wonder what that's like now none of us are using cash we're all using uh, right. debit cards and stuff but but kind of interesting but yeah those are that's some great great advice there kevin thank you it, it does also highlight the the importance of how you you educate people about money and you know like a lot of times in, in you know trying to educate employees you got to be conscious not to just knowledge dump on people right so there's there's a, a really important aspect of, of appropriately integrating financial well-being into the conversation at your on an organizational level when you're talking to employees you got to think of ways that you can incorporate that that money talk into the discussion but don't try and cover everything all at once right yeah that's great advice uh dyson we, we strongly we really believe in trying to build a culture of financial wellness and that takes time right this is this can be as chris said an intimidating topic i think Honestly, the, the banks and the financial institutions maybe overcomplicate things so that people are reliant on them. Uh, a big approach that we take is to simplify this, this language of money and, and speak to people in a way that, that they get it and it's engaging. Um, I'll just go back to the, our foundation as, as a company, uh, Kevin Cochran, who's our co-founder, he started speaking to high school um, kids about money because of the financial trouble that he got into. Within two years of, of finishing high school, he was in the workforce and he was $20,000 in credit card debt. Just didn't understand how they worked. Um, but when he started, he got out of that debt and the way he wanted to give back was going to his local high school and, and tell kids about money. And he talks about it. Initially, he just was doing a dump of information and the kids were falling asleep and he was getting angry. He's like, this is important and that, but realized he had to speak to them where they were. Like he was talking about retirement and most kids think they're going to be dead before they get to retirement, right? Like that is not going to hit with a 16 year old. And it's the same with employees. You've got to speak to them where they're at in a language they understand. And I think that's one of the, the reasons why, uh, you know, Enriched Academy has grown so much because we, that's our, our roots and it is figuring out where the people are at that we're speaking to, speaking to them in a language they can understand, telling them stories and anecdotes. Well, we work with a lot of police officers, for example, and we've, we've heard stories. We know that the rookie officer 
uh, is the one with the brand new Camaro, the F-150 pickup truck. They got their first check and they're buying a big toy with it, right? And we can kind of talk to them about the, the dangers of that. Um, but but they all laugh and it can, when, they're, when they're laughing, their guard's coming down a little bit. So um, yeah, so how you speak to your employees is, is really important, being able to speak to them where they're at and not, like you said, just dumping a whole bunch of information because that'll just, it can get their back up and can intimidate them and they'll just think, okay, again, this isn't for me. It becomes overbearing, yeah. Which, I mean, that's the other aspect I was kind of wondering about. When this stuff gets complicated and you feel overwhelmed, you shut down uh, and you don't start absorbing that information. You reinforce that negative kind of uh, connotation to discussing finances, planning for your future, and you start kind of tossing it away. Um, which of course is a terrible approach. You don't want that to happen. Um, and you want to, especially for employers, like we've said, you want your employees to be, you know, financially sound. You want them to have a strong grasp of, of their money, how to plan for retirement, which, you know, comes with a bunch of different benefits, right? You, a better, more consistent, uh, retirement, right? You know, when an employer is, is planning for retirement, they're going to retire on a more consistent, stable basis. Um, and that allows the organization to start planning more appropriately. One of the things that's kind of at the back of my head while we discuss this, though, is what do you do when you have an employee who, for example, struggles with that English barrier, uh, language barrier? You know, what kind of resources and can you use to support someone who's who's has English as a second language and it's not as strong as um, you know native speakers for example um, and how do you help that employee um, to stay uh, on the appropriate level when they're when they're trying to learn about financial literacy yeah it could definitely be a, a complicated factor we work with a lot of new Canadians um, some of the schools we work with are 100 percent international students and they're here to learn not only english uh, but to hopefully stay in canada and our numbers are actually they're our most popular students like the the new canadian because i think we're teaching them uh the canadian financial system uh, so that, that i guess that's one way to answer your question is that there is a real hunger out there for for new canadians i was actually just speaking with a um a new canadian earlier this afternoon and she said when she came to Canada uh, where she was from in the Middle East they didn't have credit the same way we did and so learning about credit learning about credit cards she initially stayed away from credit cards uh, but then that impacted her because she wasn't building up her credit rating uh, so I think there is a real hunger for new Canadians to understand this uh, sometimes that overcomes the language barrier just by sheer determination uh, but I, most of the resources uh, that are, I think are out there. Ours has closed captioning, ours is in multiple languages. Um, so there is, there is resources out there for, um, for new Canadians. And then there's a lot of, you know, communities uh, that, that can kind of help with that as well. But it's a good, good question. Uh, Cause I think that is uh, an additional barrier. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, you got anything else to, you got any other questions for uh, Kevin? No, I just say, I mean, this is so important. It's, um, it's really unfortunate. You think about many things as you're saying this, Kevin, like credit cards. You know, one of the things I think that's contributed to that is we all remember being students and seeing the big credit card displays uh, set up at the universities. Somebody could go over and easily apply and, wow, look, I can get 
$500 and and yet people sometimes don't really understand what they're getting into so I think it really is um, it's great that you guys are doing this work because it's so important that people get a handle on this and um, you know obviously right now with a higher interest rate environment uh, people are seeing the perils for the first time in a, in a long time of carrying a lot of debt where it was cheap to do that previously and now they're really feeling the pinch and particularly for their properties and so on so really just to say you know hats off for the work you're doing and uh, it's such an important topic um, you know I, I really encourage anyone who's listening to this take the time like go out there read about it learn about it. it becomes almost like a game after a while right when you start learning about these things you see okay can I can I do a little better can I save a little more where can I cut costs and you can get good at it like anything and um, I really like Warren Buffett and uh, you know you hear a lot of stuff about Warren Buffett but it's interesting a lot of times people it's, it's interesting the quotes they pick from him he has a lot of stuff out there that I think is more sensible um, than just sort of sophisticated advice. It's like one, I remember seeing an interview with him uh, a long time ago on 60 Minutes and he was asked what his advice was for the average person. He said, pay off debt first, mm. you know, because you won't get that rate of return on investment. You know, right. basic advice like that, uh, which is along the lines of what you were discussing. So I think there is, there is really good advice out there. People should just start looking into it, take an interest in it, start reading it, uh, much like following a sport or anything like that. And uh, you can it can really make a big difference over time. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, thank you for for joining us today. It's been a, a really interesting discussion. Thank you for guiding me through it carefully because boy, was I nervous for this one. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Great to join you both. Here to talk to us about financial well-being on the business side of the equation is Matt McDonald, business advisor and national leader of the food and beverage processing practice at MNP. Matt has been working as a trusted advisor for over 15 years and helps clients manage their business and set strategic goals for their personal and professional futures. So Matt, I'd just like to take a quick moment here to welcome you to the show and thanks for coming on. Thanks, Jason. Great to be here. Yeah. So. We were talking before jumping on to this session here, and we were kind of having a look at how to get a bird's eye view of the industry and the businesses in it and talk about financial well-being. And so one of the working analogies we used here was, well, you're either swimming, treading water, and, or drowning to generalize and give us a better uh, viewpoint. So just to catch some listeners up, what do businesses that are are uh, swimming look like versus businesses that may be drowning. Yeah, for sure. We talked about, uh, about that analogy, right? Because it's such a clear picture. You know, we, we know what drowning looks like. We know what treading water looks like and we know what swimming looks like. And I think it's pretty universally accepted that we'd all rather be swimming than drowning and, and treading water is a lot of work to not move, move anywhere. And so you know, when you look at those kind of three buckets and you try to place your business in it, it's it's really easy kind of from a high level to say, are things getting worse? Are your, you know, is cash flow getting tighter? Are your, are your customers ordering less, sales going down? You know, is the bank bank on your case around a, a revolving line of credit, maybe not revolving as much as they like, uh, is kind of what that drowning bu bucket might, might start to look like, right? Where things are just getting worse and you don't really know what to do. 
uh, but you just mm -hmm. know that it keeps getting worse. Treading water, a lot of times it's just that good is good enough mentality, right? Things are, are okay, but they're not great. You know, you're just kind of stuck, right? Sales are flat, uh, you know, especially in an environment like we have today with high inflation, uh, you're, you're behind the eight ball because your sales are up 5%, but inflation 6%, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then in swimming, you know, it's, it's, things are going great. You have a strong team around you. You're growing the business. Sales are up. Uh, you're, you may be into your line of credit a little less than you used to be. Uh, there's a clear expansion plan or a growth plan and things are moving well. And really when you look at those three buckets, I think that the key, not only from a self-assessment perspective is looking like where you're at, but it's also where you want to be and what are the things that you need to do to move in between those buckets to kind of get to the place that you need to be. And I mm -hmm. think if you, if you talk to anybody that was drowning, uh, they, they really want to be treading water just to start. I don't think that someone that's drowning is expecting that they're going to just start swimming right away. They just want to not be drowning. And so I think that sometimes it's having those realistic goals to say, how do we just stop the bleeding? How do we, how do we just level it out? And then once it's stable and level, how do we now move it to the, the next level? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think you, when we were talking earlier, you just told me like, no one wants to be drowning. <laughs> it's not a section you want to be at. I kind of want to get an understanding, I mean, uh, of how businesses tend to move through those buckets. But just before we do that, what do you think the breakdown is for, for businesses right now? You know, is there a lot more in drowning, a lot more treading water or succeeding right now, swimming, I guess? Yeah, like I, th I think a, a lot of that has to do with what is going on in the, the wider economy, right? Is, or what, what are the industry headwinds, economic headwinds? What are the trends, uh, you know, that are, that are, you know, for you or against you at any given time? I, th I think if you would have looked at the food industry, uh, in 2020 and 2021, a, a lot of the issues were around uh, just er, you know early in COVID around supply chain and and uh, and just managing uh, managing uh, this kind of work from home environment. Where now it's it's less that it's you know we have high interest rates, high borrowing costs, high inflation. Um, you know your so your expenses are up. So it's just a different it's a different economic environment that we live in. And that's going to affect different businesses uh, in different ways. And so, you know, that's where a lot of times you can move in between these buckets without even really realizing it because these are extrinsic forces that kind of play against you. And mm -hmm. uh, it's important to have uh, the, the right team members around you, both internally and externally, uh, to help you to navigate those, you know, to kind of go, go with the analogy, to navigate those rough waters, right? Yeah, no, excellent analogy there. So when you're kind of transitioning to those different buckets, what are what are the things the company should be doing right now to, um, I suppose, mitigate the risk of going into the drowning section or, or, or going from swimming really confidently to treading water? Well, I think if you look at what are some of the hallmarks of, of companies that are drowning, that are not doing well, and and it's kind of like, you know, the strategy is don't do those things, right? It's if mm -hmm. you, uh, if you want to, uh, be successful, I think you start by doing, by not doing some things. And if you read enough books, you, you see a lot of times the discipline is, is doing things, but a lot of times the discipline is not doing other things. And so as it relates to, uh, 
you know, how to kind of get better, uh, or sorry, improve your business. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot of it comes down to what are the metrics that you're using to evaluate your business, right? So from a financial perspective, do you have a, a dashboard that you're looking at, right? Where you're looking at, uh, depending on what kind of, what kind of business you're in, if you're in, in an actual production kind of processing business, what, what are your, uh, what are the metrics that you, you need to evaluate on your, uh, production floor for what it means to be successful. So it's, you know, we're putting out this many pallets a day or a week, or, you know, the line is running at this level of capacity. And then what's your sales force look like from demand planning, right? Are we, are we selling everything we're making? Are we coming up short? Do we have overproduction? Like those types of metrics, understanding what they are and being able to look at them on a regular basis and, and kind of hold yourself accountable uh, for how you're, uh, hitting or not hitting those numbers is is really a key factor when you're looking at at successful businesses that they have those metrics they know what they are and they're they're holding themselves accountable it's it's crazy the number of times where i've seen businesses that are in trouble really in any industry and they just don't have a clear understanding of their numbers they don't know whether they're coming or going and so um you know, it reminds me of a, a really good piece of advice that I was given a long time ago with a business that I had, uh, which is just that importance of knowing your numbers, right? How can you, how can you make decisions and lead a business if you don't first know your numbers? And, uh, one of the things that I hear a lot of times with clients is they'll say, well, I'm not an accountant. I don't, I don't know numbers. Numbers aren't my thing. I'm really good at selling or I'm, uh, you know, a product development person or, or whatever their kind of, you know, industry or, or uh, special specialization is uh, they're not a financial person. And, and, you know, mm -hmm. that's an excuse to some degree. I think that you can staff around that. Uh, you know, you have financial people that aren't marketing people and they hire marketing people and they mm -hmm. surround themselves with really creative, successful sales and marketing people to help them drive their business. And I would say it's the same thing with the, from a financial and operational perspective is just making sure that you have a dynamic, strong team around you. Obviously at a, a large business, that's really easy because your head counts hundreds of people, thousands of people. So you can have, you have the budget to have a, a really strong team around you. But when it's a small business and it's just you or just you and three or four or five or 10 other people, you, you don't have the deep bench strength that, that some of those larger businesses have. And that's where... Uh, firms like M and P um, uh, really play an active role with our clients. Uh, is is being that bench strength for them uh, to you know help them develop those those models and those metrics and and be that sounding board. You know, being an entrepreneur is a pretty lonely life at sometimes. Uh, it's pretty lonely life sometimes, and I think it's important that you have that that team around you to kind of navigate. Mm -hmm. Uh, what are those, you know, KPIs that I need to be looking at and, uh, and how do I best ensure that, you know, we're hitting the mark? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you bringing up the difference for those small businesses as well, because I mean, they make up the, the vast bulk of the industry, right. Or roughly 90% of them. And, you know, is the resources there are way smaller, um, in order to get things done as especially complex challenges like trying to track certain metrics for your organization, even though that's such a vital aspect uh, to running a business and, you know, the importance of, of making data driven decisions is, is just a requirement these days. You can't just trust your gut. You also have to know that 
the numbers are on your side and this is an informed decision. You know what? It kind of makes me wonder, you know, if an organization is doing poorly, I imagine they look have to look at certain um, metrics on their organization. But you know, what are the considerations when things are going very well? Like it, obviously we can look at, okay, well, this, this company is for lack of a better, better word, they're turtling. They're trying to protect everything that they can. Um, but you know, an, an organization that's doing very well, maybe has their mind elsewhere and is looking to expand into different markets, um, you know, really grow their team, perhaps. What should they be looking for in terms of metrics to determine that, like, yes, we can do this and we can do this confidently? Yeah, well, I think it, it definitely one of the uh, one of the key things I've seen in businesses that are doing well is uh, not accepting that they've arrived. Right? I I think you'd be hard pressed to walk into a business that uh, from the outside lo looks like it's doing really well and and you just find everybody in there with their feet up, right? They they have things that they need to accomplish, whether it's increasing margin or expanding into new markets or, or whatever it is. But but I, I think that the, the key kind of takeaway there is that no business has ever arrived, right? It, it's, it's where can we expand? Where can we kind of uh, cut some fat uh, on some of the other areas of the business, like they're, they're always looking for ways to improve. Um, one, one of the big, one of the big things within the food space that I, I think a lot of people, especially newer entrepreneurs, smaller businesses really under, uh, value is the need for capital. And, and it's, and it's why those bigger businesses seem to just do well is that they have deep, deep pockets. Um, and, and partly, partly because they've been around a long time or they're just, you know, really well capitalized. But, um, you know, one, one of the things that we had talked about before and it's, and it's true, uh, I see it every day is, uh, good product just isn't enough anymore, right? It, it used to be, uh, that if you had the right idea or the right product, it just kind of would fly off the shelves. And that's, you know, that's, that's, you have to have good product. You have to have, whether you're selling B2B or, or B2C, you, you have to have good product or, or, you know, um, uh, or if you're in the service business, a service, you, 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 your, your outcomes have to be top, top notch. Um, but it's, you need more than that, right? You need a sales plan within the food space, right? We, we, you need to understand what does sell through look like? How do we get it on the shelves? How much is that going to cost us? How do we manage inventory? Uh, how much is that going to cost us? Uh, you know, what's our marketing plan to kind of get to the consumer? It's you know very very noisy space in the food in the food industry. There's a lot of competition. So how can you kind of pierce through that noise? Um, you might have the best granola bar ever, but there's a lot of granola bars out there that think that they have the best one as well. Right. And so how do you, how do you kind of pierce through that noise? And I, I think that that's one thing that larger companies are just set up, set up to be better capitalized. And, and that's one of the things that I say to entrepreneurs and, and, you know, owners and, and leaders in smaller businesses is really just understanding, uh, what, what are your capital requirements in order to do what you want to do? And then going back to your question, what are, what are like, what are those opportunities for the big businesses is as they expand, that's where they can get upside down. B 
because they might have enough capital to keep expanding or keep kind of growing in their spot within the market. But if they say, listen, I want to expand into the US, I want to go international, I want to do this, that, or the other thing, it's it's a lot of times those are the undoings of of larger companies because they don't they don't do just that. They don't count the cost of that expansion. And I've seen it too many times where there's a good, strong, healthy business and they expand themselves into bankruptcy uh, just because they haven't uh, really understood what are the requirements from a strategy and a capital and a, a, uh, uh, a human team perspective in order for us to kind of climb that mountain. And yeah. they underestimate it. And, you know, I'm not a big rock climber, but I know that, you know, if you want to climb Mount Everest, you should make sure you have the right tools and enough oxygen in the tank to do it. And I yeah. think a lot of times they uh, they kind of rest on their laurels and, and, and see that expansion as just something that they can do and, mm -hmm. and it just doesn't work out. And so I think that that kind of counting the cost principle really goes up and down market from big to small, uh, you know, no matter what. That brings up an interesting uh, point I wanted to ask you. We just went through a really weird time where, you know, supply chains got turned upside down. We had delays, inflation became a big issue, is, is a big issue for organizations. And if you were to tell someone in 2017 that this was going to happen, they their jaw would have hit the floor. Is, it, is there contingency plans that organizations should be having? Like when they're assessing, you know, whether they're going to be expanding or they're kind of trying to plan out their future here, when they're making these assessments, you know, how do you even prepare for something like that? You know, is what do you protect at that point? Because I'm imagining an organization, if they made an expansion into, say, the United States, they're going to start selling, uh, I don't know, yogurt. And all of a sudden, we go through 2019 to or 2020 to, to present again. What, what would a company have done at that point? You know, I would imagine that brings a huge amount of risk at that point. And you've got investments now your company is now a little more vulnerable when you're planning out to do certain things at times when you feel that your organization is secure, what consideration should you make before you do that investment? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's a great question. I, I think that, um, that remaining agile is, you know, agile is a bit of a trendy kind of word, but, but I would just say that, that if you can kind of, get through the rhetoric of it, you know, that kind of variable cost versus fixed cost, you know, being able to kind of uh, respond to market changes and dynamics quickly uh, is, is a big factor, right? Um, it's, it's why in a, in a very dynamic economy like we have now, a lot of times you can see smaller businesses beating out larger ones because they can, they can pivot quickly. They can see a trend and act on it. They can, you know, see the newest type of beverage, the newest type of flavored water, whatever kind of trend you wanted to kind of grab onto and just act, right? Where when you get into the, some of these larger multinational beverage companies, they can't just put a new product up. Um, yeah. And so it, it creates opportunity. And, and, and one of the things that, that I would say in that is if you look at history, not just in the food and beverage uh, industry, but just in any industry, the businesses that have 
that today we look at as sta staple businesses, Apple or Microsoft or, um, you know, GE or, or, or Ford or just large, large businesses. A lot of them were birthed out of volatility and filling a need, right? Um, I remember reading something about uh, Henry Ford and just, uh, you know, he was solving a problem uh, where, you know, he kind of creates this car and historically people had used horses, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the answer that if you would have asked 100 people back then, you know, how do you go faster? They would have said, well, we need more horses, right? So you, you have four horses on your carriage. If you had eight, you'd go faster. The, you know, you have to kind of switch gears, uh, switch lanes to kind of get into, well, car is actually way faster than even 50 horses. Mm -hmm. And so, but that pivoting, if you were a large seller of horses, you're probably not thinking about cars. You're thinking about how to sell more horses. And so yeah. um, a, lo a lot of times that fresh thinking in a very dynamic and volatile economy can, can be the differentiator for you to become the next whatever, you know, ne mm -hmm. the next Henry Ford. Um, and, and, you know, you see a lot of entrepreneurs solving big problems in agile ways and uh, just doing the right things at the right time in the right way uh, and, and, and achieving that success over a long period of time. And so that's why I look at the economy right now and it's really easy to talk about big businesses and what, you know, what they're doing and, and how successful they're being. But I think I, I, I remain super bullish on uh, the small entrepreneurial business within the food space. And I think there's a, a tremendous amount of opportunity for uh, food, food entrepreneurs to kind of see the gaps in the market. Um, but again, within the context of what we've already talked about, right? Making sure that they have the right advisors around them, the right capital structure around them. Like, you know, there's a lot of things that the the odds are stacked against them and so they they need the right team around them to be able to kind of hurdle those barriers but but i would say that that agility piece is a big differentiator for them uh in in today's market for sure yeah who who might that be um for for these small businesses uh you know who who should be these like quote unquote growth partners that they may be wanting to talk to i mean is it people from the bank is it business advisors such as yourself, you know, what, what kind of team, like what, what elements do they need to bring to their, to their table yeah. to put the, make the puzzle pieces fit, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think that it's, it's all of those things. I, it's, it's, uh, entrepreneurs that have done it, done it before there, there's a number of them out there. I, I know a bunch of them in the food space that are now investors, um, uh, accounting firms like, like MNP, uh, you know, we play a, a really strong and significant role with our clients and advocating for them. Uh, but also just really being, uh, that, that advisor for them on the, on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, a lawyer, uh, a lot of times is you're getting started with patents and, and, uh, contract agreements and, and that kind of thing. That's, that's super important. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say a bank as much as I would say a financial partner, because a lot of times, uh, you know, when you're starting out, a bank's not going to give you any money. And so mm -hmm. a bank is just a bank account. Um, so you, you need, whether it's seed money or, or private equity or, you know, kind of friends and family, but having the right financial partner is, or capital partner, I think is important. 
Um, and a bank is one of those people, but I, I would kind of broaden it to a capital partner. Um, and so those are kind of like the, the areas that you look for an advisor, but I, I wouldn't say that you need an advisor in every single one of those, you know, you gotta be really careful how many people are talking into, into your kind of, into your life, into your company. Um, so the, the key really for me, it, it, and this is what I tell clients and, and even a lot of friends in the industry is trust is super, super critical, right? It's find someone that you trust, that you believe that has been there before that understands what they're doing because, uh, you need that person to be there for you when it's hard. And so, um, you know, sometimes it's two or three people. Um, sometimes it's only one, uh, but especially when you're getting started or when you're a smaller business, you know, having a couple people that you can call and say, this is my problem. What, you know, what would you do? Right. And, uh, if you get seasoned advisors around you, they bring more than just their discipline, right? If you, if you find a, a, a strong capital partner, um, you know, and I, I, I've worked with a number of food centric, you know, private equity firms, they're not just the money guys, right? Like they, they know people at retail, they can help you get listed. They can, uh, help you with distribution deals. They understand law so they can kind of give you some high level, you know, these are the pitfalls to look out for in contract negotiation. Like it's, it's those kind of high level discussions that I think really help, uh, especially when you're kind of new and starting out. And so, but finding, finding the right team to surround yourself externally is again, I, I think it's an, it's an undervalued, uh, piece of growth. Um, and that comes with a cost, right? And that's, that's hard because when it, when it's thin financially, you got to really watch where you're spending your money. But I, I do find that the businesses that invest in, in putting the right people around them, uh, in the early days, you, you can see how those businesses accelerated their growth quicker. Yeah. They bring insight, right? Like if you're new to it and you just don't understand, uh, mm -hmm. certain elements and you, the worst is when you don't know what you don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, that, that sure. feelings is awful um sure. so that they kind of help alleviate that i i'm wondering like when when the when the budget is thin what do you what would you prioritize i mean if you were running a, a small organization in ontario southern ontario um you know let's say you're making jerky and yep. you know you're just starting off mm -hmm. you feel like you don't fully have a clear picture of of the landscape just yet um but you're doing you're doing okay. You got like a small margin to work with here, and you want to bring in some advisors. You know what are you prioritizing in a situation like that? Well, I think you really need you know bang for your buck, right? So mm -hmm. whatever meeting you go to, go with a couple boxes of jerky and hope that that you know maybe <laughs> sets you off on the right foot. Um, yeah, uh, you know I I would say that. Um. I would say that, that any one of the kind of areas that I mentioned, if you find the right person, the advisory stuff should come, right? Because they, mm -hmm. if you find the right person, they, they've been there before, they know what they're doing. And so that's kind of like, that's, you should interview that out, right? Figure out, do you believe that these people know what they're doing and can help you? Um, I would say, you know, the, the accounting piece for me is I, I see it probably as 
that first move. Uh, and what I, what I see the most in the clients that we work with, just because they do need their financial statements done. They do need their tax returns done. Like that compliance side, it drives behavior versus a lot of stuff. It's like more nice to have. Um, and so some of it is just finding, you know, the right, the right partner for you to work with that, uh, sees the opportunity too, right. Maybe can, can, can work with you on, on cost efficiency and, and what are the things that we can do to manage the costs in those early days? Um, uh, but, but I would say that, that generally speaking, I, I see that accounting role as a, as a, a pretty key early role. Um, and then I would say the capital piece of it, uh, just because that's, that's driving the growth, right? If you, if you need to invest in significant machinery or, or sales process, uh, and people, uh, that costs money. And so if you're, if you're coming with a bit of a shoestring budget, finding that capital partner really can accelerate your growth. I would say those are the two ones. Um, a lot of it too is, is technology, right? Like technology has come so far, uh, with, with QuickBooks online and automation from a bookkeeping perspective that it's sometimes it's just finding the right pragmatic advisors to say, you know, this is a solution that, that you can put in that actually doesn't cost as much money because technology has just made it that much more accessible to all areas of the industry. Right. Um, you know, I have a lot of clients on QuickBooks online. There's a lot of automation that's now offered that used to be manual. Right. So you think about what that's done to those kind of from a cost savings perspective, but again, you need to have that right partner that can kind of point you from a trust perspective, put point you in the right direction. Um, yeah. You know, but, but, but I think that that's technology would be another thing that I would say is important to invest in as you grow. Um, there's a lot of under investment within the food and beverage space. I, I talk about that. I've talked about that at a, a few other associations, just the need for those medium sized businesses to start investing in, in technology automation, um, you know, looking at their tech stack. Uh, we do a lot of work in the kind of ERP CRM space at MNP. We have a, a pretty dynamic team in that, in that area that, that, uh, we see a lot of, a lot of businesses that have underinvested in, in those areas. And really that's, that's going to be, uh, a key differentiator in those treading water to swimming businesses in the next five years is those businesses that have invested in technology that are, uh, you know, they're, they're, a, they're, they're able to be more efficient and drive higher gross margin internally because they have strong data, strong technology, the right people. And it just makes them that much more competitive. Yeah, no, I, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate enough to have to have, a role where I where I was either implementing a CRM at an organization for uh, the first time. Um, coincidentally, we did something like that just before the pandemic hit, and uh, it was the only reason we were able to keep running. Mm -hmm. um, you know, working remotely, all these all these different technological aspects had to tie together, and then something happened where we couldn't come to the office. But fortunately, we were able to keep working the business mm -hmm. without having any disruption to clients. But um, that's an excellent point. You really do get an aspect of, especially for the small organizations, the techno technology is almost a uh, opportunity to break through the pack and really just become really efficient. 
um if you're if you manage to get good at it um yeah. you know the, the crms as a, is a perfect example um that you brought up right you've got the ability now not just to track sales for example uh different touch points of your business within from a, a customer's perspective um but now you have outreach to them you have a swath of data now that can help you inform your decisions recognize where there's opportunities in your business versus where there's weaknesses um so that's a, an excellent point mm -hmm. yeah and and i think even more than that is like kind of like like that next level of kind of opportunity threat is cybersecurity, right? And again, that, I think that that's a big thing that uh, that a lot of small and medium-sized businesses think is a big business problem, and we're seeing it be, you know, it's a small, it's everybody's problem. And uh, you know, we we I've seen a number of of, of clients and industry folks uh, just get get ripped off by, you know, through a cyber attack. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a real threat to, you know, any business today. And I would say, um, unfortunately I've seen it be a catalyst for moving, uh, from one bucket to the, another bucket in the wrong direction. Right. If you think about yeah. a business that, you know, was making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, and doing and let's say treading water they were just doing okay uh and then they get ripped off for a couple hundred grand from a cybersecurity incident uh mm -hmm. you know that's that's going to put them in a really bad spot and and um it could have been you know avoided just with that you know planning and and the right again the right people around you so i i think that that's you know what we talked about at the outset there's a lot more than just uh you know, good looks and hard work to get, to, to, to move your business forward. Right. The mm -hmm. reality is there are extrinsic forces that, that can play a significant role. Uh, you, you know, you look at the, you, the pandemic changed a lot of dynamics, the, um, uh, the supply chain issues, pallet shortages, labor shortages. These are all macroeconomic trends that it doesn't really matter how good your product is uh these there there are trends out there that are affecting every business every day that uh could move your business from kind of good to bad without giving you notice and so that's part of why i keep kind of hammering that team approach is having the right people around you again both internally and and externally having you know if you're a medium-sized business having a good controller cfo having a strong production uh, leader, having, um, you know, those right people on your team around you to kind of raise flags where they're seeing it in their respective areas, right? That, you know, this is a threat. How are we, how are we mitigating it? Um, because again, as I said, gone are the days where good product uh, wins the day on its own. Yeah. I, I, uh, I take your point there because the adaptability aspect is just, I mean, you know, with the pallet shortage, for example, that you mentioned, as well as like glass shortages, there's the BC strike, um, the BC port strike. Um, that was, I think I was just reading earlier, that was like 13 days and affected like $9.6 billion worth of product. I'm, mm -hmm. You know, there's no shortage of issues that can affect your business. So, I mean, yeah. adaptability 
really is just absolutely critical. I I did have a question, um, and it it ties a little into this, and it does tie into something we were talking about earlier. But I mean, you know, when we were talking about expanding into different markets, for example, um, and I'm not necessarily tying the question to like, okay, well, imagine a business expanding in a new market, but um, you know, it also comes into protecting your organization when you make a move. Should you be assessing, you know, if if this messes up, I have to be able to cut that limb off. Um, so, for example, like, and just an example, because this is applicable everywhere. But like, if if if, for example, you're going to make a big investment somewhere else, you're going to open up a new facility or something. Um, when you make that decision, do you have to assess it as if this goes belly up, I will still be able to tread water? Or is there an inherent risk involved with an investment that you have to accept? Yeah, so there's 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 always a risk, right? Um, you know, as you're talking there, the example kind of that came to mind is Target, right? So when Target came into Canada, that didn't go well. Uh, they they <laughs> came in, yeah, and uh, you know, it just didn't didn't go very well, and then they mm -hmm. pulled out. And so Target lost a lot of money when they did that, but they're still around and they're still a dominant retailer in the U.S. and uh, and in in, uh, in across every industry, right? They they mm -hmm. kind of just sell everything. And so, how did they do that? Well, I wasn't I wasn't in the room when they were deciding how they were going to do it, um, but I, I do think that they, to your point, figured out how from a structural perspective. From an on you know an onboarding uh, perspective, how do we onboard this opportunity, but keep it kind of within our atmosphere, within our ethos, but far enough out that if it doesn't go well, we can cut our losses and get out. But I guess my point from that kind of second level would be there were still losses, so you still had to be big enough to absorb those losses. And I would say that a lot of times you see businesses that they might even do it structurally well, but they didn't count that cost of, okay, we're gonna expand in the US and if it doesn't go well, we could lose a million dollars. Well, if we lost a million dollars, what would that do to our Canadian business? And if the answer is it would cripple it, you should probably not you know, launch it in the way that you're thinking. Um, and so the bets that Target made when they came to Canada weren't so big that they crippled the U.S. business. They were, they were. Uh, it's almost like gambling, right? It's like you can afford to put five dollars down, you know, on the table because if you lost it, you're not like it's not gonna break you. Uh, but if mm -hmm. you put this month's rent payment down on the table and you lost it, you know, that's gonna be a problem for you. And so I, I look at it the same way within expansion is. What's the, what's the quantitative and qualitative risk to you and your business by the expansion? And can you absorb the loss uh, if it didn't go as planned? Okay. Yeah, no, I appreciate you answering that because that, that was one I know we would have people uh, asking about because it's, it's such a, I'd imagine it's exciting, but it's also a little terrifying at the same time. Yeah. And I've worked with lots of businesses that have expanded into the U.S. and and they've done it well and and it's gone well. And so it's it's not a it's not 
I'm not saying it from a doomsday approach saying this isn't going to work. It's, it's just more of, um, it's really, it's really easy to stack up the money that you're going to make when you expand. But a lot of times people don't, you know, look at the coin on the opposite side too, is, is to quantify the risk of what you could lose. And so that's just good business. Like that's just good management and strategy from the perspective of, um, you know, understanding what those risks are and uh, how they balance the rewards out, right? If I said to you, I have an investment opportunity and you can make 80% of your money uh, uh, back, you know, uh, but there's a there's a 60% chance that you'll get nothing. Well, that's different than, like that that second line changed the first line, right? Yeah. I'd love it. I'd love an 80% return. That sounds great. Uh, but if you tell me that there's a 60% chance that I'll lose all of it, uh, I don't think I, I don't think I uh, love it as much. Yeah, no, it's got to be a comfort thing as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I know it's a, it's good, it's good business. And uh, the way you describe it, it's almost like this is common sense type of insurance that you should, you should almost consider it like insurance. Uh, mm -hmm. It's there to protect you if it goes wrong. That you take the steps to assess. Your organization and the consequences of something um you know an investment going wrong and how that affects your organization and mm -hmm. just play that through your head and play it through the head um play it through with your team um and just make sure that everyone kind of has a clear picture of what can can, can go wrong and what the contingency plan is in that situation i mean so the target example was perfect um so i guess you know, we've kind of had a, a quick look here. I really appreciate it. I just, before we end this and, and uh, we sign out here, I just wanted to know, did you have, what what kind of uh, advice would you give organizations right now um, who are trying to navigate uh, in this kind of environment? You know, what do, what do you tell clients? If you've had the opportunity to tell them just one thing, what yeah. do you think that would be? I would say... Um uh, f focus on, uh, focus on your, that agility piece and knowing your numbers, right? So really understand where, where are you at and, and do a real mirror check on this is where our business is at today. And how can we, how can we be more agile? So how can we, you know, be in a position where we have, um, the ability to capitalize on, the opportunity. I think that we're right at the beginning here of some significant opportunities. And un unfortunately that, that kind of also means that some people are not going to, they're not, it's not going to work out, right? They're, they're going to, there's going to be some bankruptcies. There's going to be some rough waters here, but for the businesses that are, are ready and capitalized, that's their opportunity. And so I would just say, you know, you want to be in that column, not in the, not in that last one where, you're kind of drowning. And so it's, it's get yourself up, up above the water and, uh, be agile, know your numbers and, uh, get ready for opportunity. Cause I think there's going to be a bunch here. Yeah, that's a good point. And you got to build a, a good team around yourself. So before we hop off here, Matt, how could people reach out to you if they, if they want to know more? Yeah. So I always love, uh, talking with more people from the, from the industry and the food space. Um, so you can check us out uh, on our website, www.mnp.ca, or email me, matt.mcdonald at mnp.ca. I think, I think both of those will be down in the comments section here. 
Uh, yeah, we'll have it in the uh, we'll have it in the description. So just hit read more for anyone who wants to to get more information on that. All right, Matt, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, I really appreciate the insight. It's been a, a great discussion, and hopefully for our listeners there, they'll they'll stay agile. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Thanks so much. It was great to be here, and uh, always appreciate what FBO does for its members and just the support it provides to the industry. And uh, yeah, just just grateful for this opportunity. That's all for today's show. Thank you for joining us. And we'll catch you next month for our next segment on Food and Beverage Processor Forum, brought to you by Food and Beverage Ontario. Take care, everyone.